0: Please remain standing as we come now to read God's Word before the preaching of God's Word. Our text this morning is from Exodus chapter 15. I'll be reading verses 1 through 21. This is the song of Moses, the hymn that Moses composed after that great episode where God led the people of Israel through the waters of the Red Sea into their freedom On the other shore as God exercised his sovereign majesty and power in the deliverance of his people. And Moses sings about the great might and goodness and faithfulness of our God. So hear now the word of God as as Joe prepares to come and preach to us this morning. Exodus 15 verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord. Saying, I will sing to the Lord. For he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. And he has become my salvation. This is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk into the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries, you send out your fury. It consumes them like the stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps concealed or congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword, my hand shall destroy them. But you blew them with your wind and the sea covered them. And they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard, and they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All of the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still a stone till your peoples, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your own mountain, the place, O Lord, which you have made for your abode, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground, in the midst of the sea. And then Miriam, the prophetess and the sister of Aaron, took the tambourine in her hand, and all of the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed graciously, the horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. And all of God's people said, amen. 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 You may be seated.
1: Let's ask the Lord's blessing as we come to his word. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you have not left us alone to wonder about what this world is and who we are and what our identity is. You have not left us alone to wonder about our responsibility before you or our obligations before you. You have not left us to wonder how it is that the wickedness that we see in ourselves will be expiated and forgiven. You have given us clear testimony. From the beginning of Genesis 1 to the end of Revelation 22, Father, you have given us clear words that expose our sin, expose our need, but then also clearly teach and comfort and encourage us with the gospel. The gospel, the good news that stretches back all the way to the garden, when in the very first moments after the fall, you promise that you would bring deliverance. And from that moment on throughout, all the way to Christ's, coming you have put in historical narratives and in and in 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 historical events pictures and foreshadows of that great deliverance that we may have a track record of your faithfulness showing us how you fulfill promises and how you save your people so father we ask that you would bless us this morning encourage our hearts give us hearts and minds to hear and to receive your word Speak through me, Father, stop my mouth, and may these be your words. And may we all together be encouraged and brought up into your presence and to be edified and to be made fit, to be equipped for every good work in this world through the preaching of your word this morning. Father, bless us. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts this morning be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as I mentioned last week, I wanted to take these two weeks and share with you a couple different images from the Old Testament, images that that give hands and legs and feet to the promises and the truths that we confess, but but perhaps find difficult to really comprehend or even apply to our own experiences in this world. For instance, it's, it's easy to say the words, right, God is sovereign. It's easy to say that. It's easy to, to let those words come off our tongue. But, but what does that mean for this coming Friday when the bills are due and we know that our paycheck won't hit till Monday? All right, what does that truth about God's sovereignty mean in that moment? How do I practically take comfort from this truth that God is sovereign, even in that situation? Not only do these stories and images from the Old Testament teach us history, Not only do they they show us what happened thousands of years ago, they teach us what it means to believe God and how we can, in His Spirit, by His grace, cultivate hearts of living faith. Last week, we considered how God, in His sovereign goodness, is is shaking the nations, and in doing so, equipping us and and building a kingdom and, and shaking those things that can be shaken so that those things that cannot be shaken will remain. And this morning... I want us to look at the image of the Israelites waiting for God at the edge of the Red Sea that's recorded in Exodus 14. We read Exodus 15, and I wanted us to give a summary and a picture and, and kind of the end story that, that all, where all this is going as, as, a, as, a, um, con, as context for what we look at this morning. But So turn back to Exodus 14. That's where I want to spend our time. And... And not only is, or this isn't the only place where, where God does things like this. This is, this is one of the first, and, and it becomes a kind of a motif throughout all of Scripture. But what I want to take as a, a Red Sea moment, what I want to describe as a, a Red Sea moment, is, is whenever someone in Scripture, and, and in, including ourselves in our own day, whenever we are brought, like the Israelites, to a place of utter and complete uncertainty. When we are brought to a place of utter and complete uncertainty about how the Lord will rescue, or how the Lord will lead, or or make paths straight, or answer our prayers. And the Israelites had no idea what God was going to do here. They were blocked in on both sides and were left with no other option than to look to the Lord and wait for him to act. And I I personally come back to this image a lot because for for Jen and I, the, the story that God has been writing for our lives has involved many many seasons of agonizing and, and painful and anxious waiting. This image of standing at the edge of the cliff with raging waves of death below us and an angry horn of, of Egyptians whipped up like hornets behind us, it, this image resonates with us deeply as we have walked through many seasons that have forced us to wait on the Lord, to, to wait on His timing, right. That, that so often is nowhere near what our timing would be if if we were in charge. For just one example, as most of you know, we, we we wanted to have children from the day we got married. And the Lord, in his kindness, had us sitting on the edge of that particular Red Sea for about 14 years, separated from the ability to have kids by this impossible ocean of unexplained infertility, and that on the one side, and then... On the other, all the angry hosts of emotions and fears and doubts and shame crowding us from the other side. And there are so many times where what Israel says out loud here in Exodus 14, we're going to read in a minute, so many times where uh, they're, they're complaining and they're doubting the goodness of God that, that resonated deeply with us, or, or at least resonated with how we were tempted to feel. Tempted to think about who God was and, and who we are in him. But what this image of the Red Sea allows us to do is to, is to place ourselves into that story, to put ourselves in the, in the place of the Israelites to play out how God fulfills his promises to his people and to be reminded of how he will re- fulfill his promises to us. It, is, it shows us exactly how suffering, as Romans 5 says, suffering leads to character and character to hope and, and to a hope that will not put us to shame because it is a hope that is grounded in, in the character and nature of God himself. And so entering into this image, seeing our own situations of waiting and longing and uncertainty as Red sea, as a Red Sea moment allows us to rediscover again and again how God loves to tell stories how God loves to tell our stories, and how he loves to orchestrate everything, both for our good and for his glory. And, and, and when we say for our good, we have to remember that God is the one who gets to define what for our good actually is. We want to define that phrase based on comfort and ease and earthly prosperity, right? A, a fat 401k and a house in Malibu, perhaps. That's our our idea of, of for our good. That would be for our good, God. That, That's what I would choose. But obviously, that is not what God means by for our good. Even even for the believers who have been blessed in those specific ways, that's not what God means by for their good. God's definition of good means growing in faith, growing in holiness, growing in trust and in obedience, in faithfulness to Him. In short, for our good means growing to be more and more like Christ. And so whatever situations will best accomplish that in our lives, whatever God needs to do to make that happen, those are the things that our Heavenly Father will orchestrate so that we might grow independence on Him, putting off the old man and putting on the new and growing in faith and in the image of Christ. And so as we, as we come to this passage here in Exodus 14, I want us to be honest with ourselves, to consider just how much like the Israelites, we can be. How fearful, how fretting, how anxious we can be, even when, like them, we have nothing but a history of faithfulness to judge by. Right? When has God ever failed us? Only when we start to recognize those similarities can we begin to see how meaningful and how powerful this image is as we apply it to our own situations, to see how God works in the lives of his people. For our good, for our real good, and for our real joy, which can only bolster and equip us in faith. So, let's work through this chapter together, starting in, in verse 1, again, Exodus 14, and we'll run through the, the text first and then and then draw out some things afterwards, some key takeaways. You know the story up to this point. The, the Israelites had been in slavery in Egypt. They had cried out for deliverance, and God, hearing their prayers, sends Moses and through Moses, the Lord virtually demolishes Egypt over the course of ten plagues. And in the midst of those ten plagues, spares and preserves his people from any harm and delivering them ultimately from their bondage to Pharaoh and their bondage in Egypt. And then on top of that, when, when Pharaoh finally does let them go, their neighbors give them all their gold and silver and precious gems and fabrics and the like. And so not only do they get to leave Egypt intact and uninjured, They leave wealthy with with bags brimming with riches and treasures. God blesses them. He protects them. He guards them and leads them out of the situation that was literally killing them in slavery. He sets them free, leading them out of that cursed land. Furthermore, God leads them by means of this, you remember, this gigantic visible glory cloud that looks like a dark cloud during the day, but reveals its fiery nature at night when the sun goes down. This is, this is nothing less than the, than the fire glory cloud that appeared to Moses at Mount Sinai. It is the very glory and majesty and presence of the Most High God made visible to their eyes and senses. And it goes before them. Right? It's, it's not that they have to go, well, okay, I believe that God is leading me, but I sure don't see anything. No, it's there. <laughs> Gigantic glory cloud leading them out of Egypt, going before them. Which brings us to verse 1 of, of chapter 14. Read with me. Then, Moses, or, then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back and encamp in front of, of Pi-Hahiroth, between Migdol and the sea, in front of Baal-Zephon. You shall encamp facing it by the sea. For Pharaoh will say of the people of Israel, they are wandering in the land, the wilderness has shut them in, and I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and he will pursue them, and I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And they did so. The Lord is obviously and intentionally setting something up. The people had been traveling in a certain direction and the Lord tells Moses, have everyone turn back. I want you guys right here at this particular location on the edge of these cliffs. This is where I want you because I'm going to to do something wild. I'm going to make it appear that you are trapped or or wandering and and at at a loss in order to get even more glory at Pharaoh's expense. Notice too what what he says there at the end of verse 4. I am doing this so that the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord. God is revealing himself not just to his people, but also to the nations. We heard it in in chapter 15 in the song, all the nations now hear and they tremble because they recognize they're worshiping false gods and this is the living God. Not that they turn to him, but they hear and they recognize his power. So not only is this an act of mercy toward the Israelites, but also at the same time, it's an act of judgment against the Egyptians. And this is what he does, starting in verse 5. When the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, the mind of Pharaoh and his servants was changed toward the people. And they said, what is this we have done that we have let Israel go from serving us? So he made ready his chariot and took his army with him and took 600 chosen chariots and all the other chariots of Egypt with officers over all of them. And the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and he pursued the people of Israel. While the people of Israel were going out defiantly, the Egyptians pursued them, all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and the horsemen and his army, and overtook them and camped at the sea by Pi-hahiroth in front of baal Zephon. The mind of Pharaoh was changed. The heart of Pharaoh was hardened. God's common restraining grace that normally holds us back from doing really stupid and destructive things, that grace was removed completely from Pharaoh, and he was left completely to his own foolish will, and in that foolish will, he rushed headlong after the Israelites, as if going through the ten plagues wasn't enough of a clue that that might not be a good idea. But even so, Pharaoh coming after them proved to be too much for the nerves of the people. Verse 10, When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes, and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them, and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? Is not this what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Having witnessed the ten plagues, having been given a front row seat to that vivid display of God's almighty power, having experienced God's protection and redemption out of slavery, they grow suddenly seriously afraid. It's as if all that God had done for them is either forgotten or, or just dismissed as ir- irrelevant. Yeah, yeah, they're saying, I know God did all those things for us way back, way back then as in yesterday. But that is no assurance that he will do something for us now, right? How can we trust him to be for us? I mean, I know, he's actually done, I, I know he hasn't actually done anything that would indicate he is just toying with us. But seriously, look at those waves. Look at those Egyptians. What other conclusion is possible other than God just wants me to suffer? How can I reasonably think God isn't just going to abandon me here? That sounded all familiar? (laughs) Don't we say these kinds of things all the time? Maybe, Maybe not as bluntly as I just put it, but isn't that what we are really saying when we allow fear and anxiety to take over instead of giving it to Christ? But, In spite, in the face of such unbelief, notice the kindness and faithfulness of the Lord in what Moses goes on to say in verses 13 and 14, some of my favorite in all scripture. And Moses said to the people, fear not, stand firm and see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you and you You only have to be silent. Remember, remember, God is is setting up this scene. God's the one setting this scene up. He has a greater purpose at work here, and he is about to accomplish this majestic plan to both save Israel and destroy their enemies in one swift motion. And so Moses encourages them, don't be afraid, stand up and see what God does for you. All you have to do here is be silent. There's there's one role for you to play in all of this. It's to be a witness of what God has done. That's all you have to do. Just stand and watch. In verses 15 through 18, the Lord repeats the master plan here to to get glory over Pharaoh, to to tangibly and decisively prove to both Israel and to Egypt and to all the surrounding nations like, like Moab and Edom that the Lord only is God maker of heaven and earth, king of kings and lord of lords, and, and the kings of the earth, therefore, need to take heed. Rebel, rebel against him at your own peril is what the message is. Then in, in verses 19 through 20, Moses, in, in chronicling this history, gives us something fascinating. This, this is, pay, pay special attention to this. Then, the angel of God who was going before the host of Israel moved and went behind them and the pillar of cloud moved from before them and stood behind them coming between the host of Egypt and the host of Israel. And there was the cloud and the darkness and it lit up the night, the cloud and the darkness, the fiery glory cloud lit up the night without one coming near the other all night. What's going on here? Well, we've seen this elsewhere in the Old Testament. When when we see the phrase angel of God or angel of the Lord, what we are seeing is not just a, a messenger angel, not just some creature, not some created spiritual being. What we're seeing is the physical manifestation of the second person of the Trinity. This is the Son of God taking to himself a visible form. It is the same angel of the Lord that appears to Joshua decades later outside of Jericho and identifies himself as the commander of the army of the Lord. It's the same angel of the Lord that we see with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace, one like the Son of God. This is the Lord of hosts. This is the eternal Son of God taking his part in this story of redemption. And notice, notice the prepositions. Verse 19, the angel of God who was was going before the host, right? Notice that? The angel of the Lord had been leading them, had been going before them, leading them out of Egypt. The angel of God, the eternal son of God, leading his people out of slavery. Let that sink in. But more than that, the glory cloud had been going before them as well, and both the angel of the Lord and the glory cloud moved from in front to behind them and stand between the people and the Egyptians. The visible uh, and terrifying majesty of the triune God, Father, Son, Spirit, resting there between the two hosts, lighting up the darkness so that the Egyptians don't dare lift a finger all night long. Again, just let that sink in, what your triune God does for you, for his people. And you know what happens next. In answer to the Israelites' fear, Moses stretches out his hands over the sea, and the Lord miraculously drives back the waves, divides them into two great heaps, wonderfully and astonishingly saving his people at the last possible minute by, by creating a path of dry land in the midst of the water, and like a gentle shepherd, leads his people to safety. Driven on by their madness, the Egyptians follow after them, but God's plan for them stands. Verse 23, the Egyptians pursued and went in after them into the midst of the sea and all of Pharaoh's horses, his chariots and his horsemen. And in the morning, watch the Lord in the pillar of fire and of cloud, looked down on the Egyptian forces and threw the Egyptian forces into panic, clogging their chariot wheels so that they drove heavily. And the Egyptians said, let us, let us flee from before Israel for the Lord fights for them against the Egyptians. Well, no duh, right? Like, You had ample opportunity to recognize this. But in their foolishness, in their rebellion, in their hatred, they are blinded to reality. Remember, the angel of the Lord and the pillar of fire are there between the people and the Egyptians, acting as a rear guard. And and so understandably, the Egyptians get cold feet. But but by now, it's too late. The Lord commands Moses to stretch out his hand once more and, and the waters come crashing back together. Verse 27, so Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the sea returned to its normal course when the morning appeared. And as the Egyptians fled into it, the Lord threw the Egyptians into the midst of the sea. The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen of all the host of Pharaoh that had been, that had followed them into the sea. Not one of them remained. Spend any amount of time in the Old Testament and you will discover just how pivotal and defining this event was for the people of Israel. The prophets return to this story again and again, reminding the people of the character of God, the, the character of Yahweh. The Psalms are filled with references to it. It's in Psalm 27 that we read earlier. It's in Psalm 77 that we read responsively earlier. And of course, as, as great as this display of power was, and it was pretty great. It was pretty awesome. It pales in comparison to what this ultimately points to. right? Our own exodus, not out of, out of physical captivity, not out of physically difficult circumstances, but out of sin, out of the grave, an exodus out of death, our own exodus out of the slavery to sin and the passions of our flesh. Scripture uses this imagery all over the place to symbolize our own salvation. Jesus Christ is our dry land through the waters of death, where our enemies of sin and guilt and shame were finally and fully destroyed. We were baptized into Christ's death. We were crucified with Christ. It is as if we are Israel walking through the Red Sea with the Son of God, the angel of the Lord, guiding us through the waters of death and judgment leading us to the safety of dry land on the other side. It is a powerful image, and, and all the more powerful because it's true. <laughs> this isn't a, a, a fable. This isn't an a, a early Jewish myth. This isn't some uh, fairy story that we look back to and go, well, it didn't actually happen, but the, you know, the import of it is, is significant. No, this happened. This is history. This is your God working in history over his people. This is what God has done for you. This is his story, your story. This is your redemption. And like we saw last week, this isn't just me making up this connection out of thin air. right? The, the New Testament validates this and, and, and speaks to this all over the place. For just one example, turn. Uh, you have to see this. This is so fun. Turn to Luke 9. Keep your finger in, in Exodus 14. We'll come back to it. But Luke chapter 9. <laughs> this just gives me goosebumps. There's a, there's a host of places in the New Testament where we could turn to, to to see this, but I love this passage especially. In Luke 9, Luke is describing the scene on the Mount of Transfiguration, right, where Jesus is literally standing with Moses of all people, <laughs> standing with Moses and with Elijah, and, and Luke tells us that they were talking about a departure which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem, starting in verse 30 of Luke 9. And behold, two men were talking with him, with Christ, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. That's the word I want us to focus on, which he, Jesus, was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. This departure Jesus is about to accomplish. And we read that and go, kind of makes sense, I guess. And maybe your translation says decrease instead of departure. But, but honestly, both of those are unfortunate translations. The word translated as departure doesn't actually need a translation. You know the Greek word already. You should scratch that out in your Bibles and write instead the Greek word, which is simply exodus. Exodus. <laughs> That's right. Luke tells us that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are standing there all glorified and shining and talking about the exodus that Jesus is about to accomplish in Jerusalem, the exodus that he's about to make happen. Now, of course, the, the Greek word exodus does mean departure, and as just as Israel departed out of Egypt, so as a translation, it's not wrong. But, but Luke is obviously using a word that is so packed full of illusion and significance, It's not just any old departure as if we're just like departing out of this building. He's referring back to the exodus. The exodus Jesus is about to accomplish is the very event that the historical exodus out of Egypt itself was a foreshadow of. This is the final exodus, the exodus out of the grave, out from under the curse of sin and into the promised land of lasting redemption and eternal life. The resurrection of Christ is the ultimate exodus for a new moses has come to lead <clears throat> lead his people lead his people out the angel of the lord has again come to act as a rear guard as he directs his people to safe harbor standing between his people and their enemy on the cross taking it upon himself to fight for them to fight for us fear not christian the word of god says to you stand firm and see the salvation of the lord which he has worked for you today The guilt, the shame, the death, the fear that separated you from God that you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, has fought for you, and all you need to do is be silent. That is the power of this image of the Red Sea. We have all had Red Sea moments. We have been in those situations where we see churning waters of death before us and and foaming at the mouth Egyptians behind us, and in that moment we do feel the temptation to fear. That that feeling is there. We, We know it. We've experienced that. We feel the temptation to cry out, Lord, why have you brought me here? Where are you? Why have you not answered my prayers yet? What is to become of us? But just like with the Israelites, God has such good purposes for us in these Red Sea moments. Purposes of resurrection and fruitfulness for tremendous blessing and life. He is reminding us every time we come back to this image that if we just would be silent before Him and allow Him to fight our battles, redemption and salvation beyond our wildest imagination will follow because this is what He has done for us already in Christ. This is the Gospel. The Gospel itself is a Red Sea moment brought to fruition where, having waited for the Father three days in the grave, Christ was raised again and brought to life, and we with him. This is how he works. This is what the Lord does. Just a couple days ago, Jen came into the kitchen and, and was reading Isaiah 42, and it, 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 it's perfect for, for this moment. Isaiah 42, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in the paths that they have not known. I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, he says. This is what I do, guys. (laughs) This is who I am. This is what I do. These are the things I do, and I do not forsake them. That's your God speaking to you. We are are so short-sighted, handcuffed to the things that we can see and feel. It is so hard for us to look past the externals of the circumstance, to, to look past everything that we are feeling, to, to look past what seems impossible to us, to look past it all and see the God whose character and nature we confess to know, to see the Maker in heaven and earth who is both all-powerful and all-good and whom we believe and confess is for us, which is why we need to be, why we need to be reminded constantly Of these things, to have our eyes fixed on the cross as the angel of God took upon himself our sin, our death, our curse, and destroyed it, destroyed it completely in the collapsing waters of judgment. To see and to know and to trust Christ because these are the things that he does, he does not forsake us. He does not abandon us on the edge of uncertainty and fear. He leads us, the blind ones, in a way we do not know, in paths that we have never walked down. He turns our darkness into light and the rough places into a level ground. And because these things are true, we can rest in him. Even when the seas have not yet been parted, right? Even when the the feelings of fear are still there and have not been taken away. In the midst of that place of utter uncertainty and longing for answers, we have absolutely no reason not to trust the Lord, and every reason in the world to keep our eyes expectantly on him, resting in his sovereign love, for these are the things I do, he says. So in response to all this glory and goodness, I want to leave you with seven truths, seven Lessons that we can draw from this story simply to remind us why we can trust God and why we can trust that he really does work all things together for our good and for our sanctification, for our own growth and holiness, and for the strengthening of our faith. We can really trust that he will make us like Christ. We can really trust that he will part the Red Sea. It might not be how we expect. Most probably it will not be how we expect. And it will never be in the time frame that we expect. But he will. Because he is doing a work in our hearts and in our lives. Not for our comfort and pleasure first, but for our growth and holiness and sanctification first. And in that we find true peace. So seven things. First, as should be clear, God is the one who sovereignly orchestrates Red Sea moments. God is the one who who sets these things up. He does this. This is his story. This is a motif, a, a repeating theme, a repeating pattern, not just in, in literature, but in history and in, in our lives. This is what he does. In, in Exodus 14, he is the one setting the stage, placing the players in the drama where he wants them so that he can accomplish the very thing he wants to accomplish. Right? He brings Israel back to a, a particular place on the cliff so that the Egyptians see them and run after them. The whole scene is providentially arranged. He is the sovereign Lord of heaven and earth, and there is not one circumstance that falls outside of his good purposes for his people. In other words, there is a higher good than our own comfort again. We saw this last week especially. Ease and earthly prosperity are not the ultimate goal of this life. God's glory is. God's glory is the ultimate goal and purpose in this life. And God is most glorified in us when we are living lives of utter dependency on him, lives of faith and contentment in what he is doing in us and for us and around us and through us for his kingdom, for his glory. Which is the second thing to notice here. God orchestrates Red Sea moments purposefully and intentionally in our lives to increase our faith. Right? You only have faith when you don't see something. Otherwise, it's sight. Right? I, I'm, I don't, I'm not believing that I'm standing behind this podium. I know it. I see it. Because here it is. The things that we believe are the things that we don't see with our eyes. The things that we trust are the things that we have not yet experienced. The things that we uh, have faith in are the things that we have to take by faith, according to promises given to us according to the character and nature of God that we know. He is, he is purposefully and intentionally increasing our faith through these Red Sea moments, strengthening our assurance and equipping us to live for the purpose with, for which we were created and redeemed. We are here to serve him and, and not ourselves, to believe him, to pick up our own cross and follow after him. We exist as ambassadors of his good news and to share that good news In order to share that good news, to know that good news, to be able to preach that good news, we have to first know it. We have to first internalize it, to believe it, to take it for granted, to rest in it, to trust it, because we have lived it out time and time again. And to do that, to to internalize it, to know it, to walk through that, we actually have to walk through it. We need to know what seasons of waiting are like, and we need to see in those seasons how God's truth is both tested and proved. Put another way, we need to be brought to the edge of the Red Sea where we are forced to let go of everything we would prop up in our own strength as a defense against circumstances. To stand there all vulnerable and silent and to let God fight for us, that's so hard for us to do. So hard. In His time, in His way, letting Him work so as to prove to us that He is both the sovereign Lord and our loving Father and that he alone is trustworthy, he alone is is working to cultivate in us a, a heart of faith, a mind of faith. And when he does that, we recognize, thirdly, that he is orchestrating these Red Sea moments, not only to build us up, but also at the same time to expose in us our own weaknesses and lack of faith. For the two are are, are necessarily connected. He, He brings us to the cliffs to show us that we, like Israel, still struggle with unbelief. But in no way is this malicious or spiteful. We know the character of God too well to know that, to think that. Not at all. God, in his kindness, exposes those things to us so that we might give them to him, praying fervently and specifically. That the Spirit would shore us up in just those places where we are weak and where we are quick to trust self instead of God. In those places where we doubt the goodness and the power of God and doubt His, His goodness is actually for us. And in His mercy, the Spirit comforts us and and works in us to heal us and to strengthen us. And and the more often that we stand at those cliffs, the more often we we are brought to those those places of trust and and faith, the more often we stand there with the, the raging waves and the angry Egyptians, the more we become comfortable at that cliff edge. The more we grow in the belief that no matter what things look like externally, God will clear a path. And the more we are brought to those kinds of moments, the more we experience time and time again God's sovereign kindness to us, where he gives us the ability to walk through those those waters to safety, the more our hearts grow confident in his purposes for us, the more we grow in faith. So if you ask for faith, right, we pray, Lord, grant me faith, expect a Red Sea moment. (laughs) expect to be brought to the cliffs where you're going to have to believe that God is going to do something for you without any evidence to support that, any external evidence. Obviously, we have all the evidence we need in his word and his promises to us. Fourthly, and as a balm to our weaknesses, he doesn't just expose our weaknesses to laugh at us or to scorn us, but to build us up and equip us, but then also to comfort us Fourthly, God orchestrates our Red Sea moments to demonstrate His power, His sovereignty, His goodness in our lives. Often we get to those moments on the, red, uh, on, the, on the cliffs of the Red Sea because we have been trying anything and everything in our own strength to rescue ourselves. And we always fall flat on our face, do we not? Because we cannot save ourselves, we cannot orchestrate our own lives. But when we come to the end of ourselves, when we finally realize that no amount of striving will part those churning waves before us or or defeat that horde behind us, when we finally let go of our own pride, there is absolutely nothing more comforting, more encouraging or humbling than to see God show up in all of his majesty and power and redeeming love. And when he does that, fifthly, When he does that, when he demonstrates his power to us in miraculous and precious ways, when he leads us through the Red Sea to the dry land on the other side, he fills us with a desire to glorify him. We look back on that path through the waters and see just how it was that God had orchestrated all the events to accomplish this very thing so that our lives would overflow in praise and gratitude for his presence with us and his watch care over us. And he he does this not because he is some egomaniac just just wanting to fill up his praise tanks because they're low. Not at all. He does this because as our creator, as our sustainer, he knows that we were created to praise him, to live for him, to worship him, and that when we live in the state of worship and satisfaction in him, we find that we are actually far more fulfilled far more at rest than any other situation of our own making. We actually run on, on praise. That's our, fu- our fuel. Not praise for ourselves, but praise for God. Praising God is the gas in our tanks that gives us the strength to go forward because that's what we were created to do. And when we live according to our created purpose, we're, we're running with the grain and not against it. And in that we find rest when when we don't live trusting him when we don't live worshiping him when we turn inward and trust only ourselves we all know what happens right we grow bitter we grow proud we grow gnarled of soul and deeply deeply insecure living apart from faith in Christ living apart from a deep contentment in who God is and what he is doing in and through us despite what that means for us and living for ourselves only, is like trying to cross the Red Sea on our own in nothing more than a boat made out of paper. And when we do that in our pride, which we all do, in our refusal to honor God as God and give Him thanks, in our refusal to stop putting ourselves first, when we, when we see our paper boat start to disintegrate in the waters and, and fall and fail, in our pride we try to wiggle out of any sort of responsibility for our own sinfulness. And instead of confessing our stupidity, instead of taking our insecurities to Christ and letting them be crucified on the cross, we start blaming others. We start playing the victim card in order to cover up how insecure we feel about our paper boats. Nobody look at my paper boat. Everything's fine here. As the waters are rising up above our neck. It's all your fault. And we do that to distract us from the blank void of fear that has consumed our hearts in that moment. Isn't that exactly how Israel responded? How could you have done this, God? Why did you bring us out here to die? This situation is your fault. It's the same thing in the garden. God, it's this woman that you made. Not only is it the woman's fault, it's your fault, God. You gave her to me. Obviously, that was a dumb idea. But it's all just fear and pride. And we do the same thing whenever our eyes are not fixed on Jesus. But even when our eyes are not fixed on Jesus, what does God do in his kindness? He demonstrates his power in such a way as to overwhelm our fears, drowning our fearful expectations in the parting waves, and in his good time leads us through on dry land. He demonstrates his glory and his majesty to shake us up out of our insecurities out of our self-centered ways of thinking, out of our fearfulness. And as He shakes those things that can be shaken through the demonstration of His redeeming power, flooding our hearts with peace, He fills us with a desire to glorify Him, to bear testimony to what He has done for us, to spread abroad His fame and His goodness. We become like those people in the Gospels who, when they were healed or when demons were cast out of them, what'd they do? I'm just going to go home and have some soup and watch TV. No, they're like, I want to tell everybody. Jesus says, no, stop, it's, my hour is not yet come. Oh, okay, I'm going to go tell everybody. <laughs> Which leads directly to the sixth thing God accomplishes in the orchestration of these Red Sea moments. Our, our salvation, the salvation that these Red Sea moments lead to, inspires in, our, in us hearts of praise and thanksgiving that lead to exuberant singing. And I don't just mean singing of the soul. I mean singing with body and soul together. Lifting back our heads and letting our lungs fill with air and our diaphragms supporting us and belting out praise to our God. We read earlier Exodus 15 where, where Moses and the people sing to the Lord. It says at the, end of, at the end of chapter 14, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians, so the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. And immediately it says, and they sang this song to the Lord. As a demonstration of their faith and their gratitude for what God had done. Isn't that exactly what our hearts want to do when we witness the goodness and power of God's saving hand? Don't you just want to sing? (laughs) We experience the goodness and mercy of God and our souls are eager to sing his praise. To just wherever you are, belt out in the doxology to lift his name on high, literally, as we add glory to our words with music. This is why we are commanded by Paul to address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Because both our bodies and our souls need to sing. We need to enter into that place where we are Humble enough to let go of our own dignity, our own pride, our own self-image, to lift up our voices without a hoot about what we look like, to ugly cry in, in song, and to let it go because we are praising the Lord. Think of David, right? David coming home with the, with the, with the ark, bringing it to the tabernacle. He's sitting there quietly just... Hum, da-dum, da-dum, hum, da-dum, da. singing song. I'm singing in my heart. No, he's dancing. He's making a fool of himself. And he doesn't care because he's singing to the Lord. We are lifting up our voices and giving praise to God loudly and with conviction because glorifying God in song with our whole bodies, both mind and voice, in that moment is our top priority proclaiming in song what he has done for us, telling the story of our deliverance in words of beauty and power as a witness to his beauty and as a witness to his power. We share that experience and that deliverance with others so that others too might praise the Lord. Which brings us to the last thing I want us to see here this morning. God orchestrates Red Sea moments in your life in order to accomplish things in the lives of others. We exist not as isolated marbles bouncing around in a bag, but as interconnected threads in a tapestry that God is weaving together every moment of every day. As much as we might try to convince ourselves that we can be that lone ranger, it's impossible. My life necessarily and inescapably affects those around me, even by my absence. And so what he does with us and for us is never, ever simply for our own sake. He is accomplishing something in us so that we might be used by him in the lives of others. This trial, that hardship, this Red Sea moment that is happening in your life, not just happening for me in my walk with the Lord, but also for those around me. Either as they watch from the sidelines and are encouraged and built up in their own faith, or as they walk through a similar circumstance after I do, and I am able to share with them a fresh testimony of how the Lord works. This means that your own Red Sea moments are uniquely equipping you to serve the kingdom in ways that you could not yet conceive. Had you not walked through that trial, that moment of anxious waiting on the cliffs. As the Lord then leads you through the waters, he is training you to see the reality behind his sovereign care for you so that that you have something to bring to others who are suffering in a similar way and are able to encourage them in their walk, just as someone encouraged you in yours. This is is how we are, Ephesians 4, growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. It's not just me up here. It's not just Steve up here preaching down. It's opening up the Word. It's you guys seeing the Word played out in your own lives, experiencing God's fruitfulness and faithfulness, and then ministering to one another. The body growing itself up in love. So, Christian, believe it. God orchestrates your Red Sea moments. He does so to build your faith, to expose your unbelief, to demonstrate His power and goodness in the face of your unbelief, filling you with a desire to glorify Him and to sing His praises all of which is equipping you to come alongside one another and be that voice of of grace and of comfort and of encouragement in their life, leading them to a deeper level of trust and contentment, building one another up in love. Believe it and give God thanks for it. Thank him for those Red Sea moments where you are left with absolutely no assurance of safety or redemption other than the powerful promises of God. Thank him for those moments where your own abilities are exposed as useless, where you are left with no alternative to trust in his power to save. Thank him for those moments when apart from the impossibilities and the fears, the only thing to see is Christ standing there between you and your enemy, making ready to fight your fight, to save you in ways that you didn't even know you needed to be saved. Proving proving to you yet again that he is good. Thank him, Christian. Rest in him, trust him, and learn to grow quicker in looking to him when those Red Sea moments come. This is why he gives us many Red Sea moments. Practice makes perfect. None of us are perfect yet. We all need more Red Sea moments. And sure, as the sun rises in the east, we're going to have more Red Sea moments in our life until that day when we stand before him on the other side of the Red Sea of death and never have to live by faith again. I want to end with David's words in Psalm 18, where he applies this image to his own story, and in doing so shows us how it can strengthen our own hope in the face of fear. You can, you can turn there, Psalm 18, and read along with me or just, or just listen. Psalm 18, starting in verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. The cords of death encompassed me. The the torrents of destruction assailed me. The cords of Sheol entangled me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord. To my God, I cried for help. From his temple, he heard my voice, and my cry to him reached his ears. Then, Then the earth reeled and rocked, and the foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry. "'Smoke went up from his nostrils "'and devouring fire from his mouth. "'Glowing coals flamed forth from him. "'He bowed the heavens and came down. "'Thick darkness was under his feet. "'He rode on a cherub and flew. "'He came swiftly on the wings of the wind. "'He made darkness his covering, "'his canopy around him, "'thick clouds, dark with water. "'Out of the brightness before him, hailstones and coals of fire "'broke through his clouds. "'The Lord also thundered in the heavens.' And the Most High uttered his voice, hailstones and coals of fire, and he sent out his arrows and scattered them. He flashed forth lightnings and routed them. Then the, the channels of the sea were seen. And the foundation of the world, foundations of the world were laid bare. At your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of your breath, of the blast of the breath of your nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me. For they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And all of God's people said, Amen. Father, (laughs) what... What a glorious God you are, Lord. That you lead the blind in ways that they do not know. You make rough places before them into a level ground. You teach them a way that they could not understand. You lead them out of death. You lead them out of destruction. You lead them out of those uncertainties that plague our hearts with fear. Father, you are angry, not at us, but at our enemies who would seek to destroy us. You were angry not because we called to you and called for your help, but because we needed to, because our enemies were plaguing us. And in your anger against them, in your anger against sin, in your anger against death, you flew down. You did not lollygag, you did not stroll, you did not meander. You flew down on a cherub and routed them, Father. You destroyed our enemies. You cast them down, and you lifted us up. You made a path through the waters of the Red Sea. You led us on dry ground, so that we might know you, so that we might trust you, so that we might see you and see your salvation, and know that you are God, and that you are for us. Father, we thank you for every moment in our life where we are left to wonder, how is this going to play out? What's to become of us? Where is this going? How how do we understand this situation? Lord, those questions come at us fast and furious. They are too many to count in our lives. And they are each a Red Sea moment where we're standing on the cliffs of what looks like impossibility in front of us and and what looks like fear and guilt and shame behind us from not doing what we should be doing or, or doing what we shouldn't be doing. And in that moment... You say, I will fight your fight. You need only be silent. Watch and see what I do. These are the things that I do, you assure us. You will not abandon us. And you have not, Lord. We look to the cross. And if ever we needed solid proof that you are for us, all we need do is spend time looking at that cross and seeing there Jesus on that tree spread out with nails in his wrists and in his feet and a spear in his side and blood dripping down, covering our sin, paying for our sin, ransoming us from death, establishing us in life, taking us out of the prison of our own discontent and selfishness and giving us life in himself so that it is no longer we who live, Father, but Christ who lives in us and the life we now live, we live by faith in Him who loved us and gave us, gave Himself for us. Father, may we live expectantly. May we live hopefully. May we live trustingly. May we enjoy those Red Sea moments because we know at any moment, You're going to descend and show Yourself powerful over all things. So, Father, bless us. Make our hearts still before You. Make our souls quiet before you, that we may trust in your goodness and your grace. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your son. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. And in the page after the sermon notes, be still my soul. Let's sing these words as a response to our God.